Stay inspired on the go with Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast from internationally acclaimed executive coaches, authors and ministers, Albert and Comfort Okran. You will be inspired and challenged with strategies to consistently reach for new heights. And now, today's message by Reverend Albert Okran. I have two distinguished guests tonight to help us continue this series with their own set of critical success factors. Let me start by welcoming Kathleen Adi, communications professional with widespread experience and the communication specialist for the Afro Barometer Project. Kathleen, probably is the very first time. Right. Right. No problem. So Kath- Kathleen is correcting me that it's a previous experience with the Afro Barometer Report, but all the same, welcome to Springboard, Kathleen. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Right. Let me welcome also my big brother, the founding director of IDEG. Institute of Democratic Governance, Dr. Emmanuel Akwiti to Springboard. Emmanuel, good to see you. Thank you. Right. So, before we settle down to our thoughts for today, how difficult was it to find your own prescriptions for the ideal Ghana? Were they they things that you had already lined up? Let me just sort that out very quickly and then. Well, personally, it was. You know, this whole series has helped me to think about things that I would normally not think about. Because when I think of Ghana and the problems we have and all of that, I would normally think in terms of practical solutions to practical problems. I have never allowed myself to think about what would the ideal situation be because I always think that there's no need to delve into that. Let's look at what can be fixed now, what can be fixed here. And so, but what, what this did was help me think about the ideal situation, what I would like to see in an ideal situation. And so, open up a new line of thinking for me because it's something that I had not considered in a long time. Right. I'll tell you after I ask Emmanuel the same question. One of the hidden uh, motivations for putting this together. Emmanuel, did you find that it was easy to put together your prescriptions or it took you into areas you probably hadn't thought about before? Um, you know, for uh, for us, it was a bit easy because we've been talking about matters of the nation and reforms. And we started around 2008 when we designed the election project was called Sustaining Credible Elections, Peace and National Cohesion. Then we repeated that in 2012. In 2013, we did this peace summit. And after that, we were talking about multi-party governance reforms. And our projects for this year, we are looking at how to prevent post-elections violence or ungovernability. And we're always looking ahead because we think that our democracy has done well, it's stabilized in the Fourth Republic, but it has also serious challenges. When you say we, you mean I think? When I say we, I mean the Ghana. nation. <laughs> Ghana is the nation. Right. So, I so, sure. <laughs> so I thought that you give a unique opportunity to bring some of these issues out, yeah, whilst we look at, of course you said we shouldn't be bogged down in the now, but the prescriptions have to address the problems of now with a long-term perspective. Sometimes you find that um, from the the perspective of of the organizers, in in this instance, um, the, the, the producers of the show, um, we feel that sometimes there's a lot of heat without light. 
Mm. And so when we get very emotive in our discussions, we don't break the issues down and we are driven by what annoys us rather than what we would like to see. Yeah. So this was a, a way of telling everybody, let's, let's just cool down. Dispassionately. Dispassionately we work. <laughs> so we know what to do like, what, what we yes, really like, what, yes. what we really like to design. Yes. And so we are hoping that these thoughts that are, are being shared will be um, consumed not just by by our listeners but by policy makers. Yes. Because largely if the trend of discussion um, trend, I mean, it's in a particular direction, it means that that's what people are interested in and you can't afford to ignore, ignore their thoughts. Yeah. And let me just let me just pick one of the key issues that came up um, last week. A couple of them. I'm just trying to be opinions about them. This is we are finding out. Continuity. I mean, we are allowed to express the same thing. I mean, that's what it's all about. One of the issues that came up is the need for the public sector training institute and the fact that considering the aspiration, anyone seeking to hold public office compulsory I mean, of course, any kind of training that enhances, enhances your ability to deliver on your mandate is a good thing. But I thought that was happening already. I'm not sure if um, it's not happening. I'm not sure. But I thought that was happening already in Denver. I don't know if it's still there, but I think there was a program like that that was, you know, sort of helps the new incoming, you know, government officials go through a certain kind of training. Because, of course, it's a very laudable idea. I said, any sort of training that helps you to do your job better is a good thing. And besides, leadership is one of these important things. And when you're coming from any kind of leadership experience or no leadership experience into a political leadership experience, it is quite a change. And so I suppose there's a need to manage the transition from whatever you were doing before to political leadership where, you know, the objective is different. Maybe you were in the profit sector, you're suddenly in the non-profit sector, which is government. Uh, maybe you were doing... You know, it's not mischievous. No, okay, so well, maybe you were doing... Government and not <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, you know, government should not be for profit. But should not be, yes, should not be. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but the point is that if you were not in government and politics before, if you are going to transition into political leadership, certainly you need a certain um, intervention to help you do your job well. No, leadership training and development component? Um, it's important. The problem is bigger than that. But I think that proposal was brilliant in the sense that if you are going to serve in the public policy, you must understand the ethos of public service. Um, you don't go into public service to enrich yourself, although the nature of the service and how it's designed is supposed to be a meritocracy. You want the best brains. They are professional. And laws ensure that they feel secure in a position because they are truly the agents of the state. Not the politicians who we electing and they have fixed tenure. Usually the civil servants are there for a long time. And they have these specialized skills. They have principles that guide them. The supervision and oversight is extremely important. And in some places, competitive exams, if you take, for instance, Singapore, um, they practically write exams every year at all levels. I think so you get to the highest, then you're left. And people are fired because they don't have enough knowledge and so on and so forth. But, but yes, we need that. We need that. So, so because the civil service now and the public services in general, they also draw from the common pool from which private sector draws. 
and even uh, the so-called third sector, that is the NGOs and civil society sectors. And these days, increasingly, the demand is for graduates. They come from the universities. And we found ourselves in a situation where we have a growing number of those I will call a reserve army of unemployable graduates. They hold masters, they can't write, they can't analyze. Uh, the English is totally bad, and so on. Now, this is not something you can just blame the universities, and this is not something that you can also blame parents. We find ourselves, for all the changes that started with, from shifting the educational system and all that, and then the challenges we've had, finance and education, and the numbers. So as a nation, we need something that I will call the second chance graduate education. Because, you know, um, these days, we, you, know, you know there is this um, association of unemployed graduates. Uh, I think it's building up because I don't have the figures, but it looks like every year we churn out about 120,000. That's very conservative. Graduates. 10% are extremely good. They go away. In that. The rest, maybe up to 25, the rest are there. And they're building up. And they can't find a job. Private sector people complain they are not good enough. Public sector, civil service, talk to them. They complain they are not good enough. So we also need to look at the bigger societal problem, that we're churning out people who are going to take over leadership of the public sector, the private sector, and so on. And that education needs to be radically looked at. But people should be given a a second chance. Right, finance for them to improve because they are going to be the leaders. Let me me pick your thoughts very quickly on the other subject of, of cutting down on the number of holidays is another issue that came up that gains Absolutely. quite some traction. Absolutely. And the, the idea was that those who have much more money than us are much more conservative about giving holidays yes, and we right. should look at our situation in determining what, what we On May 25th, I was in Abuja and we were talking about electoral democracy in Africa and challenges and so on. And I knew, I knew it was a holiday in Ghana. In fact, I left early in the morning. So I got there and I said to the guys, why do you hold such workshops on a holiday when we should be enjoying with our families and so on? And they said, you can afford that luxury in Ghana. Here it's not a holiday, it's a full working day. Right. You go to Ethiopia, it's the same thing. And um, a number of countries, I, I, I would think, uh, I don't even know if Kenya or South Africa uh, observes that. So um, I think we should be making decisions that really are justifiable to holidays. But also, we need to do a lot more for our country, grow the economy, productivity, efficiency issues, and really ask ourselves, especially when the holidays come one after the other. Right. So, so, what um, does it add? So, Ace, who brought that suggestion, was saying that some of the days, they can be marked by going to work in honor of, of the course that is yes. being celebrated rather than cutting off work. Cutting, what's, what's your, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I would emphasize, I would emphasize the productivity. Right. Because, you see, at the end of the day, if you're going to go to work and you're not going to be productive and you don't go to work and you're not productive, it's not. It's the same thing. I think the emphasis should be on how productive are you on a daily basis when you go to work. You can make up for a day that you didn't go to work. You can put in the time and make up for it. I don't think the issue, I will not take up issue with the holidays as such. I will take up issue with being more productive on a daily basis. I mean, a lot of people go to work and don't do anything. So, so you're thinking, let's, I mean, let's work out the productivity you know, Let's work out right. the productivity issues and not quibble over the... the, the yeah, but there, there are challenges with the productivity. I mean, public transport. 
right. has not been organized to facilitate people going. You get stuck in traffic. Uh, okay, you go on. We probably should spend a, a whole session <laughs> on removing the bottlenecks because somebody did similar to the analysis that has been done on the number of holidays and non-working days and their yeah. impact on total productivity per annum. Um, I've seen some analysis on traffic, the, amount, the number of hours you spend in, 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 in transit, yes. both to work and back. Plus doom so. It's, it's unbelievable <laughs> yes. how much downtime we have yes. and how much active productive time that exactly. we have. And that's another debate we should have. Yeah. You know what, I'm going to give you a minute to catch your thoughts because when I come back from this break, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to give us five prescriptions. And the reason why we are downsizing to five okay. is so we can be more efficient and we can work the details a bit more. Okay. Um, last week, there were some issues that were raised that I thought I, I thought we would love to to, to spend some more time on. So the ten will be an amalgamation of the two fives put together, just so we can get a bit more detail on your thoughts. And Springboard is your virtual university. So far, we've been looking at a review of a couple of the prescriptions put together by Asan Kuma and Isi Ansa in the last discussion that we held in the first series, in the first of our series on My Ideal Ghana. And so this is an attempt to construct in our minds what kind of Ghana we would like to have and trying to put away some of the possible limitations that we would have or some of the thoughts that we may be gravitating towards and just just set it out in a, without any of the restrictions that we have today. How would you want the nation to look like? My guest for tonight, Kathleen Adi and Emmanuel Akwiti. Let me start with you. Kathleen, what would your ideal Ghana look like? Your five prescriptions, not in any particular order. Okay. Do I get to go into details? Run them by us first and let's see if we can. <laughs> we can if, if I'm tempted, I'll push you for the details. Yeah. No, I want to do a little bit of detail for you. Right. Point. Just okay. go ahead. Well, like I said before, <clears throat> this, this program actually gave me the you know, it gave me an opportunity to think of things that I normally shelve because I think, oh, that's too ideal, that's too perfect. But maybe this is the right platform for something like that because where else will you get to, you know, speak your dreams as it as it were. Right. My first um, prescription, and so I, I I also focused on big themes because I realized that a lot of people talked about the kind of things I would normally do, which is have practical solutions to clearly defined problems. I chose to go with big things that affect society as a whole. And so my my first thing, which seems obvious, but if you break it down, looks uh, you know has a lot of uh, insight. Is a just society. Um, <clears throat> my ideal Ghana will be a just society. What is a just society? It's a place where there's equal opportunity for all, where there's um, social mobility based on meritocracy, where um, no matter who gave birth to you and where where you were born, you have an opportunity to scale up depending on how much work um, you put into any venture. Uh, a just society is a place where there will be no debate about whether women should be in leadership or not, or women should be in government or not. A just society is a place where there will be no, 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 no kids on the streets while others are in the classroom learning. You get what I mean? So it's a big theme, but I think that it's one of those things that an, a state can aspire to, that we want a society based on justice where everybody gets a fair shot at making a good life for themselves. Right. My second thing. Let me let me let me quickly take your thoughts on, 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 on did you find that in choosing this as your first prescription it was influenced by the area in which you operate, what you do on a day by day basis? Honestly, I don't know. Maybe. 
but um, I, I don't know, but a just society is one of the things that I tend to speak about every time I'm giving an opportunity to speak, simply because I feel that without justice as a state, we the state is the loser. And I, I concentrate, I always refer to the kids on the street as the example. You've done some extensive work in that area. Yes. Well, I, I, not directly. But the point is that these children are standing on the street. Amongst them could be scientists, could be the possible finder of a cure to a disease, could be a possible developer of an app that can change lives. You understand what I mean? Every time I drive and I see kids, I think about it, that we as a state are wasting resources. So, you know, that's... So number one is a just society. Yes, a just society. Number two? Number two will be a reawakening of the idea um, of, of the Ghanaian. You know, a reawakening of the idea of the Ghanaian. Another thing I always tell people is that the concept of Ghana is um, how many years old? It's not even 60 years old. And Ghana is a concept, you understand? It's an artificial concept in a way. But we find ourselves here, and we've been through a lot in this um, 60 years. I think that redefining a modern Ghanaian, a confident Ghanaian who is proud of their history, the good and the bad, who is proud of where we've come from, who can articulate and define a vision for the future that puts our society in a better place. I think that a reawakening of that kind of Ghanaian is my is a thing that I would really like to see in an ideal Ghana. Would you link that to the, the prescription by Isankuma last week for a new Ghanaian who has moved from being a conformist to a transformist? Oh, I didn't hear that. But right. certainly, what I wrote here was that um, patriotism is not something that is spontaneous. Right. It's something that you can deliberately um, grow. Right. So if we are going to find a new Ghanaian, it's not going to happen automatically. Right. Somebody is, ha- is going to have to create a vision and put steps into implementing that vision in place and actually deliver on that vision to ensure that that comes to um, that comes to pass exploiting uh, our our full potential as a people and that's the kind of Ghanaian that I'm looking that we find number three would be a giving rather than a begging state in the international arena I mean this is not a poor country there's no reason for us to go begging day in day out um, we've gone for begging for grants to acc- accumulating um, loans and debt. And I think that there's actually no reason why we should be like this. I think that it's part of the insecurity and lack of confidence that we have developed over the years as a result of things that have happened that are unresolved in our minds. I, I believe that if we let go of that begging mentality as a country and we strive to be self-sufficient... It will go a long way to, you know, put that ideal Ghana in place. We specialize, and like I said, we, we specialize in begging, we graduated to borrowing. We specialize in um, eloquently articulating why others to do, are to blame for our woes and our worries. One of the one of the things that you always hear people talk about, oh, in the West... That all these conspiracy theories about somebody not liking black people, somebody out to get the Ghanaians, somebody... But we never look at ourselves and say, what is our role 
what role have we played in finding ourselves where we are? Yeah. Right. So your first tweet, let me let me pause on your first tweet. Just society, mm-hmm. a reawakening of the idea of the Ghanaian, confident, proud of our history, exploiting our full potential, mm-hmm. and then a, a giving rather than a begging state. state. Yeah. Please describe a giving state in a minute before I come to Emmanuel's own well, perspective on these two. Well, in the world that we live in, they are giving states. They are called donors. <laughs> So you, you, you like to see Ghana as a donor? Of course. Right. <laughs> it would be nice. Donor nation. So others would have been donor, donor partners. Yes. Right. We should be donors. We have been before. You want a quick response in a minute to the three prescriptions okay. that Kathleen has given so fast while she catches her breath for her last two. But your own perspective on these three, any of them that catches your attention? Sure, sure. The Just Society. Uh, actually, uh, the, the vision of Ghana in the Constitution, uh, that is the directive principles, talks about a just and free society. Um, but I think it's been modified somewhat by the NDPC as it's doing the long-term plan. talks about a just, free, and prosperous society. Right. Okay. Is there, so, is there some dissonance between what we've written and what we're doing? Huge. Huge. There is no justice in the system. You know, the other day somebody walked to me, a very highly placed person, I, I cannot mention the person's name, and said, hey, Emmanuel, this peace, 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 there can be no peace without justice. And our motto is freedom and justice. So let's see the justice. Okay, so it's, it's and they, the just, the inequality in the society now is huge, tremendous. And so uh, we is an ideal that we are far from attaining unless we re-examine how we've been pursuing it. So I think right. that's important. Um, Let's come to your own prescription. Manuel. Okay, okay, my own prescription. First three. Uh, the, the first three is is quite operational because I my vision of Ghana uh, is a caring, inclusive, a caring, inclusive, peaceful. Prosperous, self-reliant, and happy nation. Caring, inclusive, peaceful, prosperous, self-reliant, and happy, democratic nation. Democratic nation, not just any nation. And I say that because... Oh, okay, that's the first one. You want the second one, isn't it? Yes, give me the three and then let's see. Okay, following from this, my three are very quick ones. Once I'm looking at how can we get there, I think that... The surest route for us to go there is to move from this, what I call the exclusionary uh, governance system we have now, to a more inclusive one. Will that be your number two? No, that's number one. It's still under number one. Yeah, supporting the vision. Right. You know, we need a more inclusive governance system. Now we don't have, although all the elements for it are there. And, And I think if you open up local government for instance, to parties, you're going to have a better inclusive system than we have now. I was going to come to that. So, how, what, in your opinion, is an inclusive, or how can we achieve that inclusiveness you're talking about? You need just a simple reform. Open local government to the political parties, district assembly, elections and elections to the assemblies, not just chief executives. And you're going to create 216, especially in the executive government arm, which has become the monopoly of a ruling party and its president. And that is where you see the exclusion institutionalized. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's part of the problem we are having in the governance system. It's a yeah. very strategic area to go to open up the system and let the parties contest. The voters would redistribute. 
So I'll tell you why. And the Lord will come to the center now on development and institutions. If you find me reverting to last week's discussion, mm. it's because I'm going to continue doing that cumulatively as we go along. Sure, ultimately, sure, at fine. the end of this whole journey, we want to try and collate the thoughts of the various resource persons who have come up to say, ultimately, these are the this is the thread of thoughts that keeps yes. coming or that kept coming throughout the series. Yes. So, for instance, last week, um, last week's discussion. There was a, a suggestion about proportional representation in parliament and a very strong a very strong submission that we have too many parliamentarians. We should be bold to go for only 50 elected and the other 50 um, appointed by proportional representation from the parties. Let me take, let me let me paint your you thoughts know, on a smaller parliament. Is this something you've thought about? I'll be I'll be I'll be quick at it. I am not one of those who believe that proportional representation Let's at the level of the, parliament. The numbers first. Are you a, are you a fan um, of the I haven't parliament? thought of. I haven't thought of the numbers. I I think that I I I'd like to see a cap. Mm-hmm. I think this every four years or eight years parliament mm-hmm. bloats, yeah. and we are not able to equip it to be efficient, and we are not getting the parliamentary function as strong as we would like to. So I want a cap somewhere. So I don't know if it should if be fifty. You, if I push you to, to give me a number. Well, I prob- for a small country like Ghana, I mean, I probably would sign off at 175. <laughs> so, yes, so we yeah. wouldn't go beyond that so that we can equip them. And, and, and I think if we open up local government, okay. parliament would work. Parliament would work because when your, your chief executive is elected and the assembly people are elected, then they have the money to do the, what they have to do because once you set it up, you have to equip them. It's in, it's in the Constitution. Okay, you as an MP, you really have to justify your holding on, your relevance in the local context. Right. And therefore, you scrutinize the budget much better than you do now and be able to say, look, my intervention, they would like visibility, the media, so that they will be seen to be arguing for why budget has to be reallocated to support water, quality education, books, teachers, and so on. And, and then they see what goes to the community. That would be their relevance. Now they don't. Because even if they do it, I mean, in the local government system, uh, nobody really pays greater attention to everything is controlled from the center. So would you be bold enough to say parliament as it is set up now is not operating optimally? It is not at all. They themselves know that. Yeah. And it, it, it is also part of the quality of uh, people who get into parliament, if you talk to the parliamentarians and they compare the caliber of people they had, and it's a study we also did, the, the caliber of people they had in the 90s when they started in 92, mm-hmm. and what they have to date, there's a vast difference. It's dropped. Yes, 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 yes. And, and really professional. And when they are on the floor and the quality of thinking and analysis, and, you know, they've retired because some were pushed out because there is this thing about first we moved into this militancy phase okay 2008 two parties almost equal and to go to parliament you know you have to make the lo- a lot of noise and so on and then you get into a situation where those who left there was no proper succession institutional memory is gone technical the training is quick 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 when you come and those who get sponsored because the parties themselves don't have the money that sponsors candidates. You have some money back somewhere who sponsor. The, the Speaker of Parliament, uh, Right Honorable Doajao, said somewhere last year that monetization of parli- uh, politics and in elections and candidate selection is a threat to, the, to our democracy. He says it's the source of corruption. 
so far, one of the strong points Emmanuel Akwiti is making as, as, as part of his quest to find a caring, inclusive, peaceful, prosperous, self-reliant, and happy democracy. quite a long one. I did deliberately so that we can take each. <laughs> one, of his, one of his submissions in making that, 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 that prescription is the fact that Parliament, as it is set up now, is not Opt, it's not operating optimally and no. there's a continuous reduction in the quality yes. of people going into our and parliament. parliamentarians say themselves right. the majority is leader, the minority leader. Subscribe to you. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And right. then we need to focus on what is important. Why are people in parliament? We need to define their roles properly. I think that we all talk about the fact that they get elected and um, those who get appointed actually have the financial muscle. Those who get elected do not have the financial muscle. Yet the people actually demand more from those who get elected because they feel that we put you where you are. Yeah. So people tend to demand more from parliamentarians, even though in actual fact they don't have you know, power and resources to deliver de- de- development, development yeah. so, to, so, to the so people. So you're also speaking to the issue so of the election of local... If um, a, a parliamentarian who has been elected has a different role to play from somebody who has been appointed but then has resources. So is, it, is this really truly representative, for instance, that the people that are elected, the people who are actually representing the people are, do not have resources, but, you know, resources will go rather to those who are appointed. Right. You know, there's, there's an incongruity there that, that should this be resolved. Yes. Now, let me come back to you for a second point. Proposta- the proportional representation. Right. We want it at local government levels, right. at the assembly level, yeah. And not, not, not at the, because right. executive power of the president is not anchored in parliament. Mm-hmm. It's not a parliamentary system where the prime minister, you see. So if you put it there, the president will get away with a lot. But if you take it to a local level, uh, where you have ethnic minorities and other minorities in the communities, you take great care of their needs too, so they are represented. Right. My, my second is... I really think we should work hard to have developmental political parties. Our parties now are election machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they truly would like to aspire to a much bigger role, but their financiers are mostly interested in elections. Okay, and so in between elections, when you go there, their structures are not working. They don't spend much time developing their manifestos except close to elections. And you may find yourself in a situation where less than 3% of their leadership even knows the manifesto. Then after the elections, depending on whether they win or not, they discard it. And then they can't comment on, they don't have the alternative views to comment on public policies, you know. And they don't have funding. There's no state funding to support this. They don't do public education on public policies. They can't collate the different views on policies that comes up in all these radio discussions, media, TV, and so The parties just cannot collect and collate them and see where the public mind is so they'll be working at it. So we do have a problem, but our parties have done well in consolidating the electoral process. But now they want to move up to the higher level of looking at policy and so on. And I think we think we should work with them. What, what, what will be the enabler for getting to that level? Is it a natural progression or there must be a deliberate effort? There has to be a deliberate effort. Look, uh, the demand coming from below on elected leaders, if you talk to the parliamentarians, it's not a joke. People understand that I give you the mandate, so they go there. And they, sometimes it's personalized. But when you listen to the parliamentarians and you aggregate, all of them seem to be going through the same experience. But when you put it together, you have public policy. 
<laughs> whether it's education, job, health, you know, and various other things that they need. When you put them together, it's public policy, and it tells you that they, as lawmakers and policymakers, uh, are not coming out with policies that addresses the needs of a huge majority. Then they tend to look at it personally, and then they go broke. You know, they tell you they, they have to go for monies, loans, and so on to be able to pay fees and so on. But, but these are, this is the situation. So there's the need to accelerate development. And the parties, um, after 24 years, um, I think we ought to put mechanisms in place to accelerate their shift towards development. It can be done. It's been done in other places. And you need, for instance, we thought the Electoral Commission's business is not the party's developmental behavior. It's elections. Who takes care of their developmental behavior? Nobody else. Would you like a centralized body that does we, this? We, we, uh, when we looked at the multi-party governance reform, we said, look, we need a multi-party uh, commission. Okay? A multi-party uh, democracy commission that would take, bring, convene the parties on development issues, look at their role in nation building, all these things they do that polarizes us and so on could be a subject of conversation, a dialogue between them on how best to be here. Because they're also navigating. Don't forget that we never allow the parties to operate. The coups, okay, disbanded them. Uh, the one-party state did the same. So for most part, they, they do well with protests because underground they were protested and so on. But if you want to transit them, move them from that, to thinking through policy, managing the economy and so on, please, there's no capacity. So they go for one, people who are already professionals, and then once they get into government, they appoint them, the party is empty. Okay, so, and this is not good for us. We have an interest in their capacity to develop public policies, implement them, improve the quality of education, create a second chance for the millions, if not hundreds of thousands of unemployed graduates and make change the future because these are the new leaders coming. Right. And it's for the parties to think through this and, and provide solutions. Give me your third position. My third. Uh, that one is to, I think we should modernize. It goes along with AC's thing. I think we need a modern uh, a civil and public service, the local government service. But their qualities. This must be based on merit, professionals, impartial, and their sense of independence or autonomy secured. The political control and interference in their careers uh, is something that we must put a stop to. They would always relate to, to, to politicians and serve them, but the public service, the civil service, is a professional, merit-based, autonomous institution. It is the state. Right. So now we've, we've undermined them. If you talk to the civil servants, the their relationship with the politicians is pretty bad and intimidating, or they themselves also play to that. So we don't have the professional civil service that was talked about in the 60s and the 70s and international organizations wanted them. And that was one of the brands of Ghana, by the way. A Ghanaian administrators were needed in the UN, in the AU, uh, ECA, and many other international organizations. You'll be told, ILO, um, you, knew, you, you know that uh, Mrs. Chinui Hesse, was deputy director, yes, yeah, in general, assistant general. So these are they were sought. They, there are so many I can't remember all the names now. But that is not the situation today. And in our own country, uh, the policy that you know our top civil servants should be once they appointed chief directors ought to have a certain political sympathy with the right. government in power and then retire with them. You know, uh, has has decimated 
you know, that rich pool of civil servants. And besides, GIMPA is no longer training them in the numbers required. Right. And so on. So we've done things that has undermined uh, the, 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 the civil service and the public services, and we need to restore them quickly. 16 minutes to the hour of 8 mm. o'clock, and my guests for tonight in this discussion, Kathleen Adi and Imano Lakwiti, as we explore my ideal Ghana. And six very interesting prescriptions. Kathleen started us off with a just society, and she also highlighted the reawakening of the idea of a Ghanaian, and then the a given rather than a begging nation or state. Kathleen wants us to become donor partners to other countries. Emmanuel says you've done it before. Emmanuel's prescription, number one, a caring, inclusive, peaceful, prosperous, self-reliant and happy democratic nation. Second one, he wants to see um, an inclusive... Sorry, let me get it right. It's still part of the first prescription. That's correct. Okay. He wanted to see a move towards developmental political parties. He raised an issue that is very dear to the hearts of many people. The fact that the parties in between elections are very weak and decimated. Their offices are not very well put together. They lack the resources and everything is channeled into... It becomes like an election machinery rather than uh, a governance uh, mechanism. And then the third one is a modern civil and public service. You guys have hit it consistently. Andy is asking on on, 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 face, on WhatsApp, I'm a graduate with a good class and very committed but unemployed. My ideal Ghana should offer training and internship for students. Both of you have alluded to um, the pool of students who come out of school either not fully prepared or not having adequate opportunity, but we will continue to explore what the ideal Ghana should contain. My guests, Kathleen Adi and Emmanuel Akwiti, and so far they've given us six prescriptions. Let me take the last two from Kathleen very quickly, and then we'll see if we can do some cross-examination, cross-fertilization, or cross-pollination of the thoughts that have come up from my guests tonight. Kathleen, what will be your last will be controversial. I, right. I pray that people will understand, <laughs> will understand it the way I mean it. And I really think I'd like to see a Ghana where religion plays a different role from what is happening now. I'd like to see a recalibration of religion, a, de- a decline in religiosity and a resurgence of spirituality in an ethics-based society. Um, I'm saying this because I think that of course, the religious organizations have done a lot of good for uh, our country. We can't talk about our development without mentioning the things that the religious institutions have done. But I think that they've also there've also been some negatives in terms of the kinds of things, kinds of messages that have been put out there over time, the way people live their lives. So I'll give you an example. For instance, I think that. Um, the, the kind of religion that is practiced, I am I'm a Christian, so I will, I will speak more confidently about that. But this whole idea of people not questioning, not challenging, you know, I think has partly emanated from the way religion is practiced, where, you know, you have... The, the idea is that you cannot question anything. Um, pastors are appointed by God. And, and people think that it doesn't matter, but I think it filters into our society and the kinds of things that we do. Look, the failings of the state and our society in terms of provision of education, for instance, provision of healthcare, provision of um, psychological uh, support for people in distress, those things have been taken up by the church. And the church is very influential mm-hmm. in shaping the thinking 
of people in a society. I think some of our downsides are the results of the way the church has positioned itself in terms of how it relates to people. His uncle last week called for a more aggressive and more assertive society that asks the critical questions. Would you would you ask uh, subscribe to that in relation to this particular point? Absolutely. And ask I, and more questions from our religious leaders. More, demand leaders, more from them. Demand more from, from our religious leaders. Fantastic. Insist that insist that you know they they, 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 they they work for us the same way we want to insist that our other kinds of leaders also work for us. We have a, a, a situation where people have this mother complex. They feel like, you know, they're waiting for the great God to fall from the sky and everything will be alright. Um, so everybody is sort of, there's a mindset of being content with your lot and instead of a mindset of asking questions, pushing harder, exploring your potential. I want to talk about women's rights, which is very important to me. Would that, would I, that be a fit point? No, it's part of re-examining uh, because I think that there's, and I'm not talking about all churches here, please don't attack me. All I'm saying is that the church's position on women you know, has in, has influenced a certain mindset where women feel like they should take a more backseat role, they shouldn't push, they shouldn't talk too much and it's part of the whole Abrahamic religion complex. You know, and the one thing that all the religions agree on is that women are these other people that women. I beg you, like I said, I'm not talking about all churches, so I'm saying that there's a certain mindset that has come up as a result of the position, the positioning that the church has preached, where as, as far as women are concerned, I think that women should be equal to men in terms of leading our country out of our current situation for and I feel like there's a way in which religion has made them, you know, step back. Right. Bit. Just one small point mm-hmm. for clarification. Mm-hmm. Where, um, along the line, mm-hmm. you said all religions agree on something. I would like to, cl- you to okay. clarify that. So do you, do you the, think all religions agree that women should be second-class citizens? I think that the Abrahamic religions, so Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, have a certain agreement. Some push it more than the others. But there's a certain baseline, if you look at their religious text, whereby if it's like women must take a certain back step, you know, a, a, step, a certain step backwards. But for time, it's and something for, I would have loved to engage. Yes, yes. I'm, I'd love to yeah, engage, I know, and I know it's controversial. I'm going to get bashed for this, no, no, but no, no, I really don't mean this it in a bad is about, way. It's about raising the big like, issues that, yes, that help us. Yes. And what I would have done was help us come to the point because, of understanding no, this that is a God created where all people Everybody goes to church. Everybody goes to church. So the church right. has a big role Almost. to, well, most the church has a big role to play in shaping minds of, of, of right. But just for context, I was, uh, it wasn't going. To, it wasn't going to be about bashing. It was going to be about undergirding no, the point with. with oh no, 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 no! This is the show where we can talk about these things. Right. Let's take your last point, <laughs> Kathleen. <laughs> it's for deep thinkers and serious talk, right? And, and I think that for me, I'd like to see a society that does not shy away from change. There's a society that is willing to embrace change. And I don't mean to sound political or anything, but I feel like we are very conservative. It takes a long time for new thought to take root, for new ideas based on science, based on evidence to take root in our society. And I feel like there's a way in which we must open our minds more, be more curious, be more welcoming of things that were not before. We take, we hide behind culture and tradition a lot. We say that something is not our culture, it's not our tradition. That attitude has kept us, you know, staying back behind the rest of the world. Culture is dynamic. Tradition is something that should evolve. 
you know, our ancestors, the way we envisage them, did not, emin- sorry, did not emanate from the earth in that manner. They learned, they added on. What would you say your last two points? Uh, my, my last two points, one is on corruption, the other right. is on education. You see, uh, uh, Article 35, Clause 8 of the Constitution says, the state shall take steps to eradicate corrupt practices and the abuse of power. Okay, this is the ideal. And we know the situation we are in. But I think the challenge of doing this uh, corruption thing is that as a nation, we are divided over whether corruption is bad or wrong. And we need to fix that. And part of the reason, too, is that the model of development we are using is creating systemic insecurity at all levels. Um, The political class is the most insecure group. Okay, and we've created a situation where when they leave office, they even find it difficult <laughs> to, <laughs> to find whatever. And then you also have the, the civil servants who work all their years. When you look at what they undergo when they go on pension or nearing pension, it's like they were better off even when they started a job than when they ended. And this is the system we've created. Right. Health education, if you compare other systems where as you get to pension, you know, society is taking care of you, your housing, uh, whether uh, healthcare, public transport, and various other things. There is nothing. You are rather going, getting into poverty. Let me take your last point. And then the, last point then last is, the last point then is, um, is about education. education. I think we need a radical second chance postgraduate education. The reason why I say postgraduate is that, you see, most of those who are out, including the first class student who's a graduate who said, and they need training and so on. Uh, it's on such a scale that you can't deal with it individually because the nation needs them. I mean, all the reforms I spoke about, whether it's the parties or the public and civil service or, or local government, you're going to need very educated people in all disciplines. So we need to speed this up. And I think what we need to do is the universities, especially, you know, those offering postgraduate training and so on, in fact, we can even dedicate some of them to that because the numbers are huge. And then there you have mentoring, coaching. Uh, you could also look at apprenticeship, but critical thinking, uh, courses, certificates, all those things. And then you have ministries, corporates, you know, organizations and others financing that, you know, so that periodically people go for that and they deepen the orientation and they solve the problems that they are confronting in their work. We need to do this. You know what? I definitely, definitely must bring the two of you back to do this again. But I've learned from you something that I would take away with me. <laughs> so, so far from Emmanuel and Kathleen, a just society, the reawakening of the idea of a Ghanaian, a giving rather than a begging nation, religion playing a different role, a decline in religiosity and an improvement in spirituality. My favorite of your points, just so that you know, uh, as a pastor, that is my favorite. Ethical society at that point came strongly under the religion, so I love that point more than all. And then a society that doesn't shy away from change. Those are your five, Kathleen Adi. The five from Emmanuel acquitted, a caring, inclusive, peaceful, prosperous, self-reliant and democratic, happy nation, the second one, you wanted us to see developmental political parties, third one, a modern civil and public service, local government reform. The, the, the fourth, right, so the third one is modern civil and public service, right. You have the corruption thing. Yes, and the fourth one is corruption. Includes social security. And you talk about society being divided. Some like the, it, others don't. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the final one, radical second chance 
postgraduate education is a very interesting angle that let's focus on even the postgraduate level and then take what we have at the graduate level and build on it for a new society. Let me just give you my own prescription in just half a minute. Went to a funeral and the representative of one political party, um, a group of aspiring MPs of one political party came around in their numbers and said they were passing this for the funeral and they came and made a donation and they filed past and, and introduced themselves. And after that one, um, 20 minutes later, the MP, aspiring MP of the other party rushed to the place with his, his, his crowd, also made a donation and filed past and greeted. And when they left, I asked myself, is this all that we are working towards? Funeral donation. We have brought things down to the lowest common denominator. My ideal Ghana should have our politics raised to a far higher level. And that's my prescription to close. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you, Kathleen. Let's do this again next time. On behalf of Comfort, Matthew and Amos, God bless you. God bless you. And God bless you. Good night. Thank you for listening to Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast by Albert and Comfort Okran. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages at Albert N. E. Okran and Comfort Okran A for free resources and information about our itinerary, conferences, and media broadcast. For speaking appointments, email albert.okran at icloud.com or SMS or WhatsApp us on plus 233 You may also subscribe to www.albertokran.com Amazon.com or your favorite online bookstore for copies of our inspirational books and audiovisual materials. Until we come your way again, always remember you are blessed indeed. Oh, 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 oh,